Hello and welcome to Bondcast, a podcast series where we discuss our views on the latest themes and events shaping rates markets. I'm Imogen Bakra, European Rate Strategist, and I'm joined today by our Global Rate Specialists, Giles Gale, Head of European Rate Strategy, Blake Gwynn, Head of US Rate Strategy, and Theo Chapsalis, Head of UK Rate Strategy. Hi everyone, welcome back to another Bondcast. Um, a bit of a quieter week this week after a, a busy few weeks of lots of central banks and, and lots of data. So um, it's nice to be able to t- take a little bit of a step back this week. Um, but it's still been, I guess, volatile markets. We've had gilt yields going up and, and down, Theo. So w- what's been driving this volatility? Yeah, I think it definitely has been a very exciting time. We've touched uh, 0.75 and then we've gone all the way to 0.9 at the 10-year pod. And right now, as we speak, we're back to 0.73. So we talk about a big round trip with strong emotions, a lot of happiness. Well, for us, because we're still on the bearish side, uh, but also uh, moments of skepticism because of that pullback. What is driving this volatility? Well, there are a lot of technical factors. Um, first of all, next week is a very particular week. Uh, we have net issuance being deeply negative. So basically it's the QE purchases only. And this is really the end of the quarter. So nothing has been scheduled. So because of that imbalance, there is ample investor fear that this car city can cause, you know, guild yields to return substantially. This is one. The other point is uh, index extensions. And March has been very well known as a month of index extensions. Um, some, uh, some investors follow indices that rebalance right on the day of the extension, and that was the 7th of March. Other investors, however, rebalance at the end of the month. So we are, well, there is still a perception that there will be buying over the next days into the month end and quarter end, and this is supporting yield valuations now. So this is why we see this particular pullback. Okay, so how are we positioned then going into the next week? You mentioned a couple of reasons why we might see mm-hmm. a bit of a pullback in yields, but I noticed that you said at the beginning that you know, we're, you're still bearish and, and still have that 1% right. target tenure, I think. So right. how are you positioned now? Yeah, I think it's, 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 it's really... So when we reached 0.75, we said, look, maintain the bearish view, but have ammunition also to add. So the message was, you know, run it at 50% of the risk. Now we are close to a point to say, add again that other 50% of the risk. So just be full bearish. So I think we'll look obviously at the data and everything and how it plays out next week. But we're keeping an eye to sell any strength in fixed income and to add to the bearish uh, uh, position. I mean, things, to be fair, will will be shaky because the outlook is less clear with regards to um, you know, there are, there are some hesitations with vaccines, mutations of the virus, and the timing of the reopening, and well, we've been too optimistic. So it will be volatile. However, moments such as next week should be used to increase and intensify our somebody's bearish bias on the fixed income market. So the bearish narrative is uh, alive and kicking. Nice, I like it. Getting ready to double down on it. That's what we like to hear. Um, So just quickly then, before we move um, over to the US, we had yesterday, uh, we're recording this on Thursday, um, 
we had um, inflation data yesterday, which um, came out uh, beacons expectations. So um, can you just update on, well, I guess on the data, what was driving it and, and what that means for rates as well? Yeah, absolutely. I think this was this was a moment of um, you know that, that disappointed some of the optimists because, in particular, the CPI numbers came well below expectations. So CPI came at zero point four percent year on year, RPI at one point four percent, but our expectations were more for CPI to be close to zero point eight. So we talk about a, a chunky forty basis point undershoot. Why that? To a large extent, it's methodological. And to a large extent, the changes in the weights and the composition of those weights make, well, this inflation number be weak. Um, also, clothing and footwear, apparently, uh, we didn't spend enough on clothing and footwear. So this is this, this one point, maybe we need to go and spend more. But on a, on a serious note here, I think what it, what it shows is that decisional patterns and everything that we knew in terms of spending and inflation Everything that we knew pre-COVID may be different post-COVID. And this, this is, to me, the interesting part. Now, what does it mean for the, as, as, as going to your question, what does it mean for the, for the fixed income market? What does it mean for the BOE, probably? I mean, the BOE, they realize that inflation is going up, but they are also cautious not to be overly hawkish. So that tiger that Mr. Haldane mentioned, the tiger of inflation that may need to be tamed, probably now is, 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 is a young tiger the teeth are not sharp enough yet. So I think that that inflation problem may probably take more time to develop than otherwise. Okay, fair enough. Well, Lexia, you don't have to tell me twice to go and spend more money on clothes and shoes. So I will <laughs> do my bit and let's see what difference I can make next month. <laughs> um, so Blake, um, again, a, another kind of quieter week in the US. We, we had the Fed um, last week, which we had Brian on to talk about, um, and now we've got you back this week. So, can you just update your what you're thinking now, really, in, in rates? Yeah, I mean, you know, in in some degrees, I was just kind of listening to Theo there and and kind of agreeing uh, with some of his um, comments on stance um, that also apply to the U.S. in some ways. I mean, you know, longer run, medium to longer run, we still think rates are moving higher, um, you know, by year end. But it just feels like we are starting to find some kind of near-term stabilization. And I think, you know, maybe the next two or three months could be a period where, um, you know, the, the sell-off to the extent it continues slows a little bit and any gains are really a, a little bit harder won. And um, because of that, I mean, you know, and the part that I was kind of agreeing with Theo is this idea of, you know, kind of staying um, positioned for rates to move higher, but um, it, it kind of a, a half risk, if you want to will, if you will, um, given that in the near term. Um, you know, things could be a little bit more slow, slower going, but looking at any kind of rallies to really add to that risk or, or to, you know, position a little bit more strongly. And it could be that we're seeing that right now. I mean, this week, um, I think it was pretty telling, you know, that over the last week we've had, um, you know, some things that kind of play into the, to the longer run theme of rates moving higher. We had um, a, a FOMC meeting last week, which they, I think, delivered a very dovish message, kind of reinforcing they're going to uh, allow inflation to run hot. Um, you know, we, we uh, got a headline from uh, the Biden administration that they're looking at a $3 trillion stimulus package. That's well above, um, I think, what most people in the market had kind of assumed as an initial sticker price for that uh, for that stimulus. We were probably thinking something more along two tr the lines of $2 trillion, even though it was very, very preliminary. Um, so we got some kind of headlines around additional fiscal stimulus. 
Um, and, and we had supply this week. And, you know, that, that really covers some of the major bases that I think we're driving the sell-off for the last few months. And despite all that, we've still kind of um, stabilized, if, if not rallied, depending on where you're looking at on the curve this week. So it just seems like that, um, you know, that, that impulse uh, to allow rates to keep moving higher from investors has, has started to fade a little. And we've seen more people kind of interested in staking out long positions, a little bit more interest in, um, you know, e- even if it's not going long, at least lightening up on, on the shortening side. So to the extent that we do get uh, a meaningful pullback, let's, you know, call it sub 160 in tens. That's, um, you know, much like uh, as Theo was kind of mentioning, maybe that's a, an opportunity to look at kind of adding to, to, to shorts and, um, you know, really positioning for the longer run view, which is for rates to continue moving higher. Okay. One thing I've just remembered that we did get news on this week, um, we discussed briefly after the FOMC meeting with Brian, but obviously we didn't get an announcement then and, and they said it will come in the next few days, was um, around SLR, the um, leverage ratio and, and that the Fed won't be extending those. Um, can you, I guess, I know this is a subject that you've looked at very closely, it's maybe a little bit niche, but can you just kind of Give us your latest thoughts on that, if what, how that kind of compares to what you're expecting and, and what that means for treasuries from here. Yeah, SLR. Um, I mean, for sure, it's a niche topic, but I think over the two or three weeks prior to the um, announcement that we got last week, it had really broadened out to become a, a much broader trading theme outside of, you know, the kind of typical players that you would expect to be involved in that kind of stuff, um, you know, and really, I think was wrapped up into, um, you know, some of the market conversation around uh, uh, the broader price action, both in rates, swap spreads, um, a lot of focus on it. So I I think it's worth kind of mentioning here. Um, We wrote about this before the announcement and basically said that if they did not extend these supplementary leverage ratio exemptions, um, so if you, if you remember, they have for the last year been exempting reserves held at, at the Fed and U.S. Treasuries from calculations of um, supplementary leverage ratio. Um, those were set to mature or uh, um, expire at the end of March. Um, and, you know, the thought process here was that if they are allowed to expire, um, we thought that at some point over the next year, as reserves continue to grow, both because the treasury is is kind of spending down their cash balance, which adds to reserves into the system, um, but also just because the Fed is going to continue to buy assets and create reserves. All of these reserves get dumped onto bank balance sheets, which just increases, um, you know, increases the, the leverage there as measured by supplementary leverage ratio. So the thought process that we had was that if those exemptions do not continue at some point over the next year, it could start to, to uh, become a binding constraint and we could see banks start to pull back in treasury buying and other things, right? So that's why we kind of looked at that and said, if they don't extend these maturity, if they don't extend these exemptions, um, you know, we could see this as uh, um, something that would, you know, cheapen up cash, both outright. Um, so we would see yields increase um, and also kind of weigh on swap, swap spreads because this would really be a, a cash driven story. Um, the one caveat we put on there, and this is a very important one, is that we said if they ended these exemptions without talking about something in the future or providing some kind of guidance that they're going to uh, make some you know, permanent tweaks to, to these measures. And that's exactly what they did. So they ended the, they announced last week that they were not going to continue these temporary ex- extensions. But the most important piece of that announcement was actually that they said, you know, we understand that this could be a, be, become a problem. You know, they essentially don't want SLR to be the most binding constraint on banks 
They want, you know, some of the other regulatory measures they have that are more risk weighted. They want those to be the things that banks really focus on. They don't want supplementary leverage ratio to be the most important. So to keep it that way, um, you know, they're going to look at more permanent fixes, you know, whether that's kind of recalibrating the SLR, maybe they make these, you know, they come back and, and make the exemptions that we had for the last year, maybe they make those permanent. Um, we don't really know yet, but the point is that they did promise some kind of future relief. Um, I shouldn't say promise, but they at least um, indicated that they are going to be looking at a more permanent form of relief. And, it, and that essentially neutralized the price action. So all of that kind of sell-off in rates, move-in spreads, a lot of those things that people were expecting on this announcement didn't happen because we got that forward-looking piece that really kind of canceled out some of the negative effects that you might have expected to come out of that announcement. Okay, so in the end, it wasn't as much of a story it, for markets, is it? It wasn't, and it was kind of a quasi-resolution because, yes, we, we got some clarity on what's happening to these temporary ex 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 exemptions, but now everybody's just kind of moving forward already to start focusing on, um, you know, we, we've already gotten a lot of questions this week about what our expectations are around this process that the Fed's going to do where, you know, they're probably going to open up some permanent changes for comment, for public comment and, and start exploring uh, various options. So now already people are kind of turning to that as, as um, you know, the, the next focus. So it's, it's a partial resolution and a, and a um, partially in the rear view, but then another piece of it's just been kind of kicked down the road. So, um, you know, I think the more important part, though, is that we didn't get, um, you know, we didn't get a, a big market movement around that announcement in the way that I think a lot of people were probably worried about and a lot of investors were very nervous about. Okay, just quickly, correct me if I'm wrong, but does this mean then that the SLR exemption will still end in at the end of March as planned? At the end of March. Be a period of time. I presume before they've kind of figured out what these permanent. For sure. I mean, like, so the way the Fed usually does these processes is that, you know, they'll, they'll have some kind of, they'll come out with some kind of proposals and that could be relatively quickly. It could be, you know, within the next month. Um, and then they usually leave it open for public comment for a period of time. They're going to close it, analyze the comments, come back with kind of a final proposal. And that'll probably be, um, you know, the, the end of it. So we're, we're definitely talking a period of, you know, at least, at the very quickest, you would think maybe two months, three months. Um, so there, there will be a gap between when these expire. But the important thing is, and, and this is something we wrote about ahead of time, is that that shouldn't matter all that much because SLR was not a binding constraint for most banks today. Um, the concern was always about what happens two months down the line, three months down the line, a year down the line, when reserves continue to grow, eventually SLR was going to become a binding constraint. But as of right now, most banks are not constrained by SLR. You, you kind of look at all of their quarterly, the, the big uh, banks, the GSIBs, if you will. Um, if you look through their quarterly statements, earning statements, you, you read through their transcripts, none of them were really hitting uh, SLR as a binding constraint at this point. They, weren't they didn't need this exemption to meet regulatory their, their regulatory requirements. So you know, ex having it expire on March, if we get a permanent solution you know, this summer in June or July, that gap shouldn't be that meaningful because hopefully it will it will not become binding uh, uh, on a lot of these banks before then. Okay, thanks, Blake. That was super interesting. Um, so now over to Europe then, Giles. Um, you know, contrary to uh, the US and the UK view, we switched to be a little bit more bullish, very near term, kind of tactically. After the ECB, it was sort of a, a flows driven view, I guess, thinking that we didn't really want to take on the ECB and their significantly higher 
purchase pace over the coming few weeks, particularly in April, which is typically a, in Europe a big redemption month, so quite a low net supply month already. Um, that view well, seems to have played out quite well. So what are we thinking about it now? We said we'd update quite frequently and something that we'd monitor quite closely. So um, yeah, here we are. Now's your chance. Update us on, on what we're thinking on that bullish view. Yeah, well, I think that's exactly right. Um, you know, we, we we picked the moment to switch from quite a strong, longer term bearish view to a more positive view quite well. Not necessarily, I mean, it's and it's working, but not necessarily for the precise reason that we had emphasized, which was the flows. I mean, I think that the flows matter. And you know, just to give a sense here, I mean, it looks like the ECB is sort of Put itself on a track you know we only have one week of data really to go on here but you know just extrapolating quite aggressively from that you know it looks like they've put them on themselves on a track to buy maybe 25 or 30 billion uh, more per month in um in, in the bond market and it's a little bit difficult i think you know just given what we know about the various sectoral stories to see who's who would really sell that kind of uh, you know, that kind of quantity of paper to to, to, to the ecb at um at higher yields you know at, at lower prices than um than the way we were so i think we're probably going with it but you know i would characterize this as a you know moderate to, to low conviction sort of view um that's certainly the kind of thing we want to keep under review you know, pushing in the same direction, of course, over the last couple of weeks, we've had, I guess, um, you know, I mean, just people asking the question, you know, we've had a big correction, we've had a, you know, a whole load of fairly significant risk events, we've heard about the SLR, that was an important one, also central, you know, global central banks, um, the Federal Bank of England included, not just the, the ECB. And, you know, I guess the question is, you know, what's, what's the next big thing? And, no, my expectation is that the next big thing is probably just you know, what it was before, but it just takes people a little bit of time to you know, sort of just settle down and you know, refocus on, on, on those themes. But I definitely think that you know, recovery, reflation, those kinds of things, that, that they are still the, the direction of travel. And actually, you know, the, the, the latest round of data from Europe has actually been really quite conspicuously good. And I think that that, you know, that just keeps you sort of focused on uh, you know, really this as a theme of, well, we're looking for the right moment to, to probably to, to switch back towards being bearish, at least, you know, unless something dramatic um, you know, outside of that happens. But obviously, almost by definition, we don't know exactly what that might be. Um, so you touched on the fact that you know yields have been rallying not just because of the ECB but a couple of other reasons. One of the big themes, um, perhaps for lack of everything else this week really to talk about, but one of the big themes we've been talking a lot to clients about and a lot internally is this kind of threat of a third wave in Europe. Um, some countries extending or going back into lockdown um, and all of that against the backdrop of you know vaccine well, the slower vaccine rollout in Europe anyway, but, you know, vaccine supply disputes, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I'm guessing from everything that you just went through about our bearish view and, you know, the more resilient data in Europe that we don't think that this is, you know, a game changer for the 2021 outlook. Um, perhaps you could just talk us through that a little bit, because I, I guess markets are starting to worry now a little bit more than, than they were perhaps even two weeks ago about, about COVID again. 
Yeah, I mean, first of all, I just you know, I, I don't want to muddy the waters at all. I mean, you know, we are we are bullish at the moment, um, but as I say, you know, it's something that we are, you know, looking for the right conditions to um, to, to to potentially you know, turn around again. So you know, just it's it's under review, but that's not the same thing as uh, as, as being bearish in the short term. Listen, I think the 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 answer to, to all of that is. You know, there, there's been quite a bit of pessimism around, mostly about vaccination rates in, in Europe for quite a while, and you know that hasn't really improved. I mean, last week we we talked a little bit about the whole fiasco with AstraZeneca. Uh, you know, that sort of thing is still a problem. But you know, you and I, Imogen, we've looked very, very carefully at you know all the vaccine delivery forecasts and so on, and you know, I mean. Given the the recent track record, I think it's it's only natural that markets question the forecasts because you know they have been frustrated again and again. But it's important to to to, to note that you know most of the boost is coming from um, new manufacturers and Pfizer, and you know, there's no particular reason to to doubt either. To be honest with you, in fact, Pfizer has been pretty pretty reliable. And so, you know, I think that there is every reason to expect the, the vaccination rates to pick up pretty, tr pretty dramatically, and you know, around the middle of next next month. And you know, again, and, and then the other question is, well, you know, this third wave, and it's you know, it's it's something which is, you know, it's not a wave of the size that we saw just after Christmas. Um, you know, it's it's more a sort of swell, if you like. You know, it is causing. Um, those problems in you know, with uh, with hospitals in some in some regions, particularly in France and so on. But I think the thing to, to recall here is, you know, the the overall cost of lockdowns has come down and down and down and down. You know, at the moment we're talking about regional lockdowns. Yes, the direction of travel is different to the UK and, and, and the US, where you know, deconfinement is re is really the ongoing theme. So you know, visually, it looks like Europe is going in the wrong direction here, but actually. It's coming from a starting point of being, you know, at least compared to the, the UK, in general, uh, much, much more open. And, you know, I think that you know, the signs at the moment are, well, you know, we shouldn't, uh, we've already talked about the data, you know, we, we, we shouldn't be blowing this out of proportion at all. And I've said again and again, you know, <laughs> on these podcasts and elsewhere that I still see every reason to expect um, Europe to sort of to, to, to open you know, fairly sort of confidently and you know, sort of permanently on a similar time frame to, um, to to other developed markets. I mean, you know, there may be a delay which we'll measure in in weeks at the most. You know, maybe sort of month, month and a half, that sort of thing. But I still see you know, from you know, I guess late Q2, uh, you know, reopening really being the absolute number one thing. That's it. <laughs> I'll just add as well, because I was looking at the data a little bit earlier and this, you know, related to the vaccine story and the AstraZeneca um, kind of saga. One, I guess, concern that, that markets had a little bit was that this would really knock the confidence of, of the public in the vaccine. And actually, um, even for even in France, you know, where they were arguably 
already the most skeptic about vaccines in general and certainly the COVID vaccine. But then the survey earlier this week showed that they had the kind of worst view of, of the Astra vaccine after the, the blood clot scare. But even then, although it's only been a few days of data, we can see that, you know, the Astra vaccine clearly stopped for a few days, but has picked back up again, you know, at the same pace as, as it was going before. So, um, And, and you know, it didn't spill over into hesitancy uh, exactly. with respect to other vaccines, which I think was exactly. also an important point to, to emphasise. Which is important, important too, because as you said earlier, most of, of Europe's supply is Pfizer. So, you know, the Astra vaccine only makes up 25% anyway. But um, yeah, um, so just a, another positive to, to add on to the end of that. All right then, guys, um, we'll stop there for this week, I guess. Um, hasn't been a super busy week, but still plenty to talk about. And we'll catch up again next week. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Bondcast. Please do subscribe to our channel to get future episodes and like it as this will help others to find it. We also encourage you to follow us on social media to get all our latest content. Speak to you again soon.